And we're starting off with a bang there. It's uh, November, and in case, another, in case there's more news for you all, the wall wishes Greg, of course, so there he is. <laughs> so every now and then, we're very thrilled to have a guest on. And this just a, in. Ray Powell is with us today. And he stole my <laughs> oh, dear. show coming up in Abilene on December 22nd. We'll talk about that. And there's so much more in this amazing career and everything. So we have Ray Paul here. Yay. Hey, hey, nice to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Very good having you. Well, it's but, been a great show. See ya. <laughs> I can't get out, though. He's blocking the way out here. Okay. So you have a long, illustrious history in the music thing here. Can you tell us a little about it? Okay. Well, um, I was born and raised here. Uh, in Rochester, played in a lot of bands uh, back in the uh, mid to late 60s and 70s here, and then I ended up on the road with a band, and to make a long story short, then uh, we were playing in Cape Cod, and I had a couple friends in Boston, and when I um, was driving back there, we actually, the band split up in Boston after we had been on the road for about a year and a half, and then, or in Cape Cod, rather, and I drove back and stayed with uh, some friends to visit for a few days, but I ended up, uh, I got approached in what, the biggest record store there. Uh, some guy offered me a job and said, okay, come start Monday. And I was just killing time waiting for, to go to lunch with one of the guys I was, an old friend of mine, yeah. you know, that he was up there working and going to school at Boston University. And he says to me one day, he goes, uh, he said, so what'd you do? I said, well, I parked my found a parking spot finally. And uh, then I went uh, to Strawberry's Records on the corner of uh, downtown big area. Um, uh, anyway. Um, Is this in Boston? In Boston. And I was way, I just said I killed time. And then I said, and uh, then I, I was, this guy comes up to me and starts asking me questions and says, why don't you go down, uh, talk to this, uh, our general manager wow. two doors down. And I still had about 25 minutes to kill. I said, okay. So I went up there and guys interviewing me said, um, Kevin's called me, he said he sent you up here. And, uh, I said, yeah, long story short, he offered me a job. He said, start Monday. That's awesome. Man. I had no idea. No, uh, I had no intention of taking the job though. I went back, and when my friend asked me, what'd you do? I said, well, I, I, I was offered a job at Strawberries. He goes, Strawberries? He goes, I've been wanting to work there forever. I'm trying to get in there for the longest time. Wow. And you just come in, and you're waiting, and they offer you a job. And I go, well, well. You know, it's funny. When I was in Los Angeles back in, like, middle 80s, I had a shot. I met some girl. She was an assistant manager at a Tower Records. And she offered, she was, oh, you want to come work? And I was like, well, I don't know. I was like, I, I was like, had the playing thing in my head. And I turned it down. And like, a, I feel like it's such a dumb ass. I'm kicking myself every day. <laughs> I think that was my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> anyway, but so I didn't know what to do. And I just kept hemming and hawing and over that. And then I, he said, well, what are you going to do? Go back to Rochester and just start another band with the same old people? That was his words, not right. mine, you know. But um, so I started thinking about it, and I said, well, maybe it's time for something new. And that's where I really, my original career really took off. I ended up staying there, uh, getting a small apartment, uh, working f 
for the record store and you know just the clerk at first but then I went up to like management potential but it was still just you had to live you know you had to pay the bills so it was better than than selling shoes or something at Macy's right. or whatever but um so anyway I stayed there and then I started recording at the end of 77 and then in 78 um my single my first single came out and that was basically uh, the start of my original career there. Um, and I didn't have a band, but we ended up getting six months of uh, airplay on all the, including the two major rock stations and about six college stations. And, you know, and it, so I said, um, huh, I better get a band together. Yeah, right. You know, and people, but the funniest thing is that people, um, the approach that I took about having a record out and then having it played for about six months without a band, they thought of you now as a recording act right. and not as a club band where they could see you every week somewhere. And there were bands that were playing, and we decided, um, you know, or I decided after I put the band together that we weren't going to be that kind of band, that we weren't going to, you couldn't see us every week. If you missed us this week, oh, you see us next week. We wanted to keep that perception of a recording. Well, that's smart, I think. And I think it worked. And um, it's funny because my manager at the time uh, was it became my manager. It was actually the guy that hired me to work in the record store. <laughs> became my personal manager wow. for the band afterwards. And um, and um, it's funny because the with all the airplay we we were getting, we had uh, the first gig that we did. We did a warm up somewhere in a small club. Didn't really promote it or anything, but our second show was at the Orpheum Theater. Wow, that's pretty Sponsored cool. by WBCN, like uh, the big, uh, they had a, a thing with a new developing act coming in from A&M Records, but I thought we were a lot much better, and so did the reviewers. <laughs> but uh, it was a band you never heard of again called um, 1994. And this was in 1978. Wow. So, but did you ever hear of them? The band of the future. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so we we, st we went to that. Then we started opening at the Paradise Theater for national acts coming in. And then in 79, we started headlining our own shows. And at the time, it, the Paradise in Boston was a big concert club. I mean, in 77, 78, Cheap Trick was still playing there. Right. It held about maybe 650 people, but it was the premier concert club yeah. and um, I would have loved to have opened for Cheap Trick but we didn't get that yeah. you know, speaking of them I don't know if you knew it but uh, they came out with this thing I, I got it it's uh, all their stuff from the whiskey it's like two nights at the whiskey four shows from like 77 oh yeah it's, I heard about that it's great yeah. I mean, they're is it just, with vinyl or? no it's on CD I got it on CD, CD. Oh. but I mean what I like about it is warts and all you know, they didn't sweeten it up. They didn't, like, there's a couple spots where, like, his voice cracks and what whatnot. You know, and it's like, it's the real deal. It's the, it's, but I like stuff like that, yeah. you know. Well, just to finish up the, a little ahead. bit of the story, then in the 79, we started headlining our own shows. And that was when, even though we were local, you had to have some kind of credibility. Uh, they wouldn't bring you in if you were just a club band or whatever. You had to, you know. Right. People like the Cars, us, uh, oh, the Stompers. With a pedigree, uh, sort of. So yeah. NRBQ. <laughs> you start doing those shows there. So we had two headline shows, and then we uh, changed guitar players for that year. And, uh, and you know, that group stayed 
together until like July of 1980 after our album came out. What was the name of that one? The album? The, the band. It was Ray Paul and RPM because oh, okay. the single, my single when it came out was just Ray Paul. It was just, I didn't have a band. It was just released as Ray Paul. Okay. But I liked the guys. We were all good friends and I wanted to give the band some kind of identity. So, and, right. but we were never, I see sometimes people go, oh, yeah, they, I remember your band RPM. I go, no, no, no. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you don't, you don't talk to Tom Petty and say, I remember your band, the Heartbreakers. No, it's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Tom, right. I remember Mud Crunch. But there was, it was never that to, to, uh, you know, and <laughs> belabor it, but that was actually the name of the band. And when we did the album Go Time, you know, some of the guys were, they were great guys. We're still all in touch, and um, um, it was just a fun time. And then I went on to produce some uh, other local bands and just do some new recording on my own back to being a solo guy in 81, you know. So Boston was... Uh, is really the the town that la city rather I should say that launched my uh, solo career. Right. When you produced though, when you were doing that, did you just like find bands? I mean, did you have to pay for the time and things like that, or when you say, or were you just talking about putting the music part of it together? No, I was in the studio with them. You know, I was in there when uh, we were mixing. I was mixing with the engineer and produ you know giving them some tips on the way. And while we were recording it, I would try to be there. Right. You know, and uh, we'd pick songs out. No, and I, I'd, uh, some of it was, you know, I'd get paid, but some of it was like you do it on speculation. Right. Or, yeah. um, but it wasn't a whole lot because I was still producing myself and um, uh, trying to record at the same time. And that's where Permanent Press started later that year, 1981, that I, um, um, I didn't have another actual label. So I decided to start one on my own, and I was going to do what Rhino did, mm -hmm. like try to license projects, which I ended up years later doing, but reissue projects. Uh, but back then, there were no CDs yet, so right. I was mm -hmm. still talking about... I tried to go after... One of my things was trying to go after the T-Rex catalog, because it had disappeared uh, around 1981. Yeah. But there were too many complications, too many different people were owning yeah. different things, and back then it wasn't as easy. Later on, everybody was dying to get their stuff out of right. the CD. I, <laughs> I know, there's so many reissues out now. I just, I've been buying a lot of them, Humble Pie, this and that. I know, I know. But it's, I love it. There's a, and in fact, I'm going to just real quick, there's a book coming out by about Tom Wehrman. About who? Tom Wehrman, the producer, oh, the producer the cheap of trick guy, Kirk whatever, Kirk. and and he's like talking about that whole era, and and it's pretty interesting because he was saying how it's kind of very similar to what you're talking about. You know, he just kind of got started, and he was he, he he got he wrote a letter to Clive Davis, and it got shifted to this guy, and then this guy sent it to this guy, and then this guy gave it to Clive Davis, and yeah, he, you know, he said that was like meeting the Pope, you know, back then, you know. <laughs> so, well, yeah, that's true. Like that. You know, and then they um, they had um, I know that we had um, what was I going to say here. We had um, national distribution on all the products we had. When I did the single, they had a couple national, well, they had regional distributors in different parts of the country for the first single. And then the next year, we were with the album in 80. Uh, we had distribution by Rounder. They had their own distribution mm -hmm. system besides the label, but they were a national. And then Gem Records 
uh, distributed it back then. They were like the king of the imports. Yeah. You know, I mean, the best imports came through them. That's great to have all that background, though. So, but that's the part that most musicians don't get a chance to yeah, I know I think about. that's the thing, too, is you learned your craft and you are battle-tested, where today they go, oh, this person has the look. Let's just plug them into the studio. <laughs> well, funny you should say that, because... Um, but, I mean, the single we did in 81, well, I did, the How, the How Do You Know single is actually the one you were, we were talking about earlier. They, um, they had, I set up some distribution for that, but it, then I ended up at the end of 81 moving to Los Angeles mm -hmm. uh, at the time. My, at, uh, at the time, my girlfriend got a fantastic job offer in, the, like, a medical field, and she, she uh, had, a, like, a masters and all this stuff whatever it goes with it and so they moved i moved out to california but i had meetings with the single letting them know that how do you know became it was actually number one on wbcn the wow. biggest fm station for it was number one local record there and uh all these things i go in the, and had meetings with uh mca and a&m and and they're all saying well um you know, your stuff doesn't sound like Journey and Billy Joel, whatever was hot. It right. goes, you know, we we're looking for stuff that's kind of like that right now. I go, all right, see you later. <clears throat> Six months later, I had another meeting because I started working on some other stuff, and I go into A&M, and um, we had a meeting at their building in Hollywood there, and... Um, Next thing you know, the A&R guy I had met with, I'm meeting with again, and this time he goes, well, I don't know, we don't want stuff that sounds, we want stuff that sounds different. Edgy. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, we're looking for new stuff. Uh, you know what I said to him then? I got up and said, well, thanks for the meeting, but you know, let me just tell you, you guys don't know what you're looking for. <laughs> you know, you yeah, really right. don't. You know, you're going with the trends. Right. Or, now you're not going with the trends. Most of those guys are a bunch of cowards. They just, I, they just they they just speculate. You know, it's like, you know, well, wait, wait, well, this is good. We got to get another band like that, or we got to get a band like they got, and, and and then they just run around chasing their tails. And the trends always it goes in trends. So by the time they get them, that trends wearing out. Right. And I think good music will last. Yeah, by the time you get the people together and you mm -hmm. record and you get it out, the, the, the we new just phase. found this great hair band. Oh wait, Guns and Roses and uh, Grunge is coming out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There are always a few steps behind, not ahead. Yeah. And I remember, too, like with the Beatles, I mean, we know now how they are, but, you know, they weren't very hot in the 70s. They even had the K-Tel record. Yeah. <laughs> you know? oh. And then it came around Beatlemania and everything was like, and they sued them, Beatlemania. They sued Beatlemania, but by then it was really taking off again. The funny story, I mean, these are stories, I don't know if I should be telling you, but they'll That's be fine. in the book someday. <laughs> but, uh, but in, you speak, heard them here first well, by the book. <laughs> speaking, yeah, you probably are hearing some of these first. Um, I know that the last few were, but you mentioned Beatlemania, Rob. And, uh, I saw that on TV because I had, I used uh, to watch Godzilla movies on Channel 9. They would, they would <laughs> Speaking of deals, what? what? <laughs> it, it was funny, though, because I, I got approached by somebody from Lieber and Krebs were the guys responsible for, they managed Aerosmith, and they were right. in, based in Boston, and I had the record out there, and they also managed, uh, they were in charge of the whole Beatlemania Broadway show, getting him on a label, getting it uh, going, and they, someone approached me because of their record to for the Paul McCartney role, and I said, well, first of all, I'm not left-handed, and second of all, 
I don't really. I get. I'm just getting my my own career going. I don't right. want to be. And those guys really got pigeonholed, you know. I mean, I have had these McCartney influences and things when I, especially when I was younger, you know. But uh, you know, um, but I I uh, didn't want it to interfere with what was building there, you know. And so I just said thanks, you know, for asking. I mean, it was just an audition, but it was nice to be thought of that. Yeah, that would be it, awesome. It might work. Like that great. Was a, that You're going to go press that, the picture that's on that one, yeah. the other one, the second one. That was a question I had, and, actually. Well, this, uh, the sheet, well, the black sheet. <laughs> he's, he's got that. We passed oh, okay. it out. Yeah. When these different things happen to you, like... You're being played a lot on a on a station, and a, I mean, do you ever fall into the trap of oh man, we're getting there, we're making it? I mean, how do you differentiate no. the fact that it's just a, a a step along the way versus I've arrived? You know what I mean? Like how some people think, and then one minute it's there, and one minute it ain't. Well, you never really arrive. I mean, I was offered even a couple of production deals where I could have been on. Um, uh, MCA, Mercury, uh, Polydor, uh, but it was this, there was a production company in Boston offering people. What they want you to do is sign your publishing away to them. Right. They want you to, uh, you know, they'll put you in a studio, and what they do is they get an advance from the label, but you don't get the advance. They get it, and then they bill the label for all the recording costs. Next thing you know, you're in the hole right. because <laughs> they're billing them back to you, and they're making money on it, though. <laughs> Because they got their own little studio, you know, and uh, uh, it's it's just not beneficial to Shark the artists. So waters, man. pick any <laughs> band you want, and you'll read about like, well, we were filling arenas, but I didn't have any money. I had a way for money. Where our manager had a mansion, and was flying around on a plane. Well, you know, <laughs> last night, just coincidentally, uh, my girlfriend was watching that Millie Vanilli thing, and I was watching that, and what a con job. I mean, the producer purposely did it the way he did it. Yeah. The real singers were, were told to shut up. They finally blew the whistle. Those two guys, you know, they were from freaking Germany and France, and they could barely speak English, and yet they're, you know, doing this. I mean, they totally knew the lip-syncing thing was what they were doing, but they did it, and, and it was just a big mess. I mean... It, the biggest con job I think ever. I mean, well, we had about three Boston area bands at the same time, starting in '79 and the manager and got rich. <laughs> and signed with some of these production companies. And what happened is because they've already made their their money, they don't care if the record sells or not or right. breaks out. They had one that hit accidentally, but it was really. I don't really want to name it. It was named after a soap opera thing, you know, in 81, I remember. they, But they got it by luck. It just got picked up uh, accidentally and wow. Top 40 played. But anyway, a lot of these groups then, they sign with them. They're on Mercury, MCA. But they're, they become a cutout. And is it worth giving up the rights to all my songs that someone else now owns them? Right. And then I'm in debt. Uh, I'll never see anything, you know, because they're not going to promote it really big, and MCA right. isn't going to, unless somebody puts money behind it, additional money. And, um, you know, you're getting, like, secondary, third markets playing your stuff, but yeah. you can't get the big, big cities because they're not 
you know, they're not going to throw I, out I'm money. Always, I'm always amazed there's no oversight for that business. It seems like it's a wild west, man. It's like they can <laughs> do whatever the hell they want. Pretty much until the government step, until somebody gets really pissed off, and then they, they, you know, they had it in the 90s, and then in the early 2000s, a lot of payola scandals. I mean, there was always payola right. going back to the 50s even, you know, and I don't know if it's gone away. It might it might come back, you know. Well, they were, it might I can give back. one example, like with Van Hale, and when Fair Warning came out, it didn't sell as well. So what did they do? They had the record men going around. They might bring Coke to some, money to others, play this heavy rotation so right. it starts selling more. Yeah, yeah. The Dark Album. Well, that was part of it, too. Yeah, the dark side of the record business. And uh, Hey, is it time for a commercial yet? No. Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Okay, so this has been sponsored are by your, Are your teeth not as white as you'd like them to be? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a podcast, not a radio show. Safe. <laughs> so, All right, I, I talk too much for... Any, no, you're perfect for this. Any comments this? from the gallery over there? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, there we go. Am I yeah, talking so too much? No, that's what our guests are for. It makes our job easy. Uh, <laughs> feel free, jump right in. But how did it also go? Like, like now I will ask friends for recommendations. Anything's at our fingertips. Did basically, in terms of growth and fan base, was it just word of mouth playing a lot? Where in Boston? Just anywhere you played. Anywhere? Is it just okay? You played. Then there's more people at your shows. You get well, like sort of we, a mystique. We actually, when we did this warm-up gig in Boston in 78, we did a small club in Cambridge uh, called the Inn Square Men's Bar. And it's just like a long, narrow bar. And, you know, if you go five, six steps from the stage, you, you might hit the bar. And the people were either sitting at this table, long thing there, or standing up all over. But... I remember our very first show that we had lines going around the corner down the street, and it was all based on the airplay. So, I mean, the airplay was, it wasn't like we were getting, you know, like some cities back then and even today, they play like some of the local groups, but they're playing you at 2 or 3 in the morning. But we were getting played all prime hours, you know, drive time in the morning and at night on top shows. So I think that really... Uh, built us up to where people um, had that perception that we were. That's so true here because I would love to listen to radio late at night. Every now and then a local band would pop in about <laughs> 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, still? These <laughs> this days, was yeah. like, not. I don't really listen to it as much anymore. Like I listened to the Beatles thing on DD 45 to get here today. And I don't really listen to oh, much radio. No. I listen to, actually I listen to classical a lot in the car now. But uh but back in the day, I'd be listening. Wow, it's a local band. <laughs> like at two in the morning. Yeah, they sneak in there sometimes. Well, I think Raj used to play like what he wanted. Oh yeah, so, I used so to. Man, those were the days. Well, it used to be like in Boston, the big FM stations were before all these consultants came in, and that's what ruined radio. They started hiring. I remember when I moved to LA. Uh, we left for LA in November '81, but the following year, in the beginning of '82. Um, I was keeping an eye on what's going on in Boston, and these consultants came in and basically ruined the stations, you know, because now you, you, you're not getting played. We're going to, like, you know, unless you're the Cars and Jay Giles and Aerosmith, uh, but we're not going to be playing bands like Ray Paul during the day now or anything, you know. It's like, here's your guidebook. Right. And that's when radio, in general, 
turned around in the beginning of 82. Uh, you started to see consultants in late 81 in other cities. But Boston had that reputation that other cities didn't have where we support our local talent. Right. We support our groups. And uh, we're giving them airplay. And when they do a show, we're going to support them and whatever. And they were the, it was the greatest times. Um, in uh, one of my CDs, the Charles Beat, which uh, came out in 2000, I asked one of the the lady who actually was the first woman who played me on Boston radio. I sent her just a cassette saying this is coming out in February, and in November I sent it to her and said, you know, and she had a local show called The Best of the Boston Beat, and she played mostly groups she didn't know, but that were around. But she's the one Leslie Palmer is in her name, and she wrote a whole page of. In my CD, the Charles book, I asked her if she. I finally tracked her down after all these years, but she was the one that really started playing me. And, and when the Charles V came out in 2000, that was a compilation of all my uh, uh, recordings with some new stuff and uh, a track I did with a, with a friend of mine who I met when I first got out to L.A. So that's another couple stories. Yeah. It's know. a big thank you, too, to all our nice local radio, like Whole Lot of Shaking and the Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah, Rumble. yeah. Because that's where you want to hear, okay, you're talking about now radio being corporatized. You hear the same things. You want to hear different radio and some excellent stuff. We yeah. have it all over here. We're blessed. Yeah, Mike's great. Mike Murray and Scott Regan have been the best, the biggest supporters in this city of local music or guys coming into town to play from other areas, regional, whatever. And uh, they've just been tremendous. And their shows have given my music a lot of airplay going back to, like, uh, well, Mike, I used to send him stuff. I didn't know him until I ended up back here. And there's another story. Well, <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, oh, now you're there. Yeah. How did you get back here? <laughs> All right. You're, Part two. We're going to skip chapter 31 <laughs> through 34 and go. Well, when I was in L.A., though, um, I, I probably should mention this. Um... um I, I met a guy, well, I by accident. You guys ever, you remember Emmett Rhodes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A dear friend of mine passed away a couple of years ago, 2020. Well, I got there and said, I'm going to look for some uh, recording studios. This is a great story. <laughs> Still buy the book, please. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's not out yet. When it comes <laughs> out, you're very welcome to come back okay. So I'm looking, there was a magazine that came out in L.A. every two weeks called Music Connection. And when people were there, yep. they'd, um, they'd look, who needs a guitar player, who needs this? And it was kind of a glossy, like, people magazine-sized yep, thing. I and, remember that. And they did articles, and then they even had tips on how to record this, how to, what kind of, they reviewed some of the new uh, pedals and gear and drums and whatever. And then in the back were all these want ads, you know, and they had a big cover story. Well, anyway, the back page uh, on the inside of the back cover, there were like uh, about eight rows of these little blocks going four across, eight down, of recording studios. Right. Some said, you know, it was mostly kind of small print. Some gave you a name, some didn't. Well, anyway, I saw this one at the top at the end, and for some reason, I don't know, I liked that square, and it just said... It said uh, 24 track recording, $50 an hour, and it had a phone number. I go, $50 an hour, that's my budget right now. Right. That's good. So I call the number. Didn't have any name, nothing. Guy answers the phone. He goes, Emmett Rhodes Recorder. <laughs> We're a live show. Don't worry about it. Come on. <laughs> I go, I go, 
uh, what was that? <laughs> kind of took me by surprise, you know, because I had been a fan of his and his music and his albums, and of course, cause he was sort of, a, everyone thought he was the new Paul McCartney and, you know, very Beatlish. So we started talking. I went down to see him. You know, I said, if even if I don't do this, I just got, I got to meet this guy, you right. know. And anyway, we became friends. And there were some years that kind of drifted apart. And then in the 90s, uh, a friend of mine at another label was putting out a compilation of his. And so I called him and I, I just said, I'm an honor. You know, I said, hey, you know, we haven't seen each other in a while, but I want to come down and talk to you about you know, now I'm ready to do some recording, or I want you to remaster all my stuff and get it from different source tapes. I mean, we did it from two-track stereo to eight-track masters. To we we just and he did such a great job because uh, he was a studio guy. He learned how to 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 run a, a studio board and record from Keith Olson, who produced wow. the biggest Fleetwood Mac records. Right, he's and, great. And Keith taught yeah. Emmett how to do this, so we were out there and. Um, so I recorded a track with Emmett that ended up on the Charles beat. Uh, we did, to make a long story short again, in 97, well, 96, actually. I don't know what year it was, but before we did that, we did a show, and I got Emmett to come out after 23 years to perform with me, and I put a band together of different guys. Some were even from different parts of the country, and they flew in. And we did the show... Uh, for, as part of this festival called Poptopia in LA. And, um, like I said, Emmett, it hadn't been on a stage and I talked him into it, but I, I actually hadn't, I committed to the, um, promoters that we would do it, but Emmett hadn't committed to me yet that he would do it. I was, well, I knew he was nervous about wanting to do it. He hadn't been on a stage since 73 or 72. Wow. So anyway, finally, Worked out. We got it. We had huge crowds. I mean, the famous actors, everybody showed up to see him. You know, and it was the two of us were billed as that, but it, everybody came to see him. They didn't care about me. <laughs> you know, they, basically, I didn't care because I did it for him. You know, we were friends, and we had been working in the studio together on different things, and we worked on a few more. But anyway, that came out in 2000, and... Uh, but... For me, that was a long time. I hadn't been on stage either since uh, uh, 1981. Wow. Sometimes it's good to be in somebody's orbit like that, though, because you still network. I mean, you still meet people and stuff yeah. like that, you know. I do it a lot. It's like the joy, drummer, of, you know? the joy of doing the show and being on the music scene is I've gotten to see people. I remember when. <laughs> I missed you in L.A. Cool. by about two or three years because I think I went there in Well, 84. I was there in 81, through uh I came back here in Rochester in 2002. Wow. And I mm. came back because it was just getting so expensive out there and right. my mom my dad had passed away in 98 and then my mom um needed some repairs and things done around the house and I had a few friends that knew how to do you know electrical work or woodworking or so whatever. And so I came back to help her out and then she needed to have some knee replacements. So she did that one year, and next year another one, and so first year I was kind of going back and forth a little, but and then I ended up uh, staying here. I met some guys. Actually, one of the guys I played with in 1967 through 69 called one day uh, at the same number we had back in the 60s because yeah, right. I was staying at my mom's house, and 
and said, uh, hey, uh, I heard you were in town. You know, you want to do something? And we ended up doing, putting together this band that eventually, he eventually left before we came out, but it was now the 28 If Band the first time around. And that band was Bob Janik. Do you know Bob Janik? Yeah. Was, yeah. Bob, the rest of soul, you know, great guitar player, great guy. Um was Bob Janik, me, and Joey Cinturino on drums, and oh, okay. we all sang Joey's in Inside Out now. And uh, Joey knew a couple people, but ended up we did that band for two years, and then Bob left because uh, they had a baby. Right. And uh, in two, after two, for two years, Bob Janik was, was with me. And then we got John Kovac in for the next two years, who is back in 28F again now currently. So that took a break, you know, and then I went back to recording original. I mean, it just, uh, we had so much fun, and we, it was never intended to, to be a lasting band. Right. 28 If, we, we had a few people ask us, can you play for this party? Can you do this? And next thing you know, we were playing at the casino at Finger Lake. You go yeah. like, that was, um, it was fun. We're only going to do it for a couple months. Next yeah, time we're 20, yeah. But we're doing does it. anybody not know what 28 If is? <laughs> Come on. Me. <laughs> you no, do. Oh. Well... <laughs> the funniest thing is when we first came out with it, uh, we'd be in like uh, a club and there'd be like young, younger waitresses um, coming up to us, going, "Wow, you guys are good." Especially, I like your the Beatles you do and all that. He goes, "But I don't, I don't understand the name Twenty Eight F. What's it mean?" And I would say, "Because they're young and pretty." I would say. <laughs> It means that if I were 28, you'd probably go out with me. <laughs> Good Can you line. imagine, I like that. though, <laughs> these guys in the Beatles, when they broke up, none of them were 30 yet. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's just, you think about that for yeah. a minute. <laughs> well, it's... do you have any theories on that McCartney being dead thing? I mean, how the hell could yeah, something think, like that I even think start? he passed away and he was replaced by Shemp Howard, who had faked his death. <laughs> my lips are sealed about that. Yeah. My, okay, here's one of my theories, time. is that I think they found out about how when this started, and they played along a little bit. Yeah. That's because if you look at the Abbey Road cover, yeah, there's a car with the 28 if, but that does look like a funeral procession when they're walking across the right. street. Well, they could never admit it. Once they were deep into it, they yeah. could never come out and say we did it. You know, there might be something buried in some box that we'll find in 50 years, or they said, right. <laughs> we fooled you. But, but my theory is that... Um, Okay, in 66, record sales were down even with a tour because of Lennon's comments about Jesus. Right. Okay, so now in 67, they're there going, well, how are we going to, we're not touring anymore. How are we going to keep record sales? They're burning our records in the South. They're not selling like we used to. So why don't we create this thing to, to mainly to boost sales, you know, and now we just pick one of us. Okay, who's it going to be? Who died? <laughs> Paul! <Jim. laughs> um, and then the sales started, you know, two years later, whatever, uh, people started going back to those albums, starting with Sgt. Pepper. Because it really was that was the album that kicked off all the clues. And I think, too, right. is like this, there's a great book I read called The Experts for Wrong, and they were going, I think, by 66. Well, the Beatles were past, say, Herman's Hermits and the Dave Clark Five will pass them by. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Actually, oh, yeah. I admit, like, Sgt. Pepper's not my favorite album of theirs. No, <laughs> not mine no. either. Yeah. I mean, Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul is Rubber mine, Soul yeah. is incredible, and I like oh. Abbey Road better than Sgt. Pepper. Uh-huh. But oh, I yeah. just, and I don't dislike it, but I guess it's one of those things, there was such a build-up, and when I put 
put it on. It's like, but I like, it's not like my half of the White Album. I mean, a lot of it's to me is kind of junk. <laughs> but well, it was almost like four individual Beatles contributing to make a Beatles right. album. But whereas a lot of them <laughs> recorded their own stuff separately, even or with one, just with Ringo or excuse me. <laughs> but the Twenty Eight If thing, um, I know sometimes we'll play a place and somebody will walk in and we finish the song, which is you know back then in the mid-2000s or now, and all of a sudden, once we stop, the people that just came in are standing watching, they go, we knew what you'd be doing. You know, they go like, oh, I knew we knew we'd be hearing some Beatles or whatever, you know, but we don't, we're not really like, a, we don't we don't probably play more than four Beatles songs a night, unless we do, we did a couple of special nights, but we do British Invasion, 60s, um, stuff we grew up on that we like and we haven't this summer we did a lot of original shows where it was like 60% original because uh, we were playing with other bands that were doing originals and we didn't want to like we wanted to play our, you know besides myself John also writes in the band right. and we do some of my old songs and then we're working on newer ones too I like too you have the th- like what I've seen you you have a nice flow between the original and the non-original too Oh, so you've seen us? Then. I've seen you plenty oh, of times. Plenty I float around. Yeah, and actually, Radio Social was the last one. Oh yeah, we. Did, I'm uh, everywhere on the scene. Oh yeah, <laughs> I thought we shared. That's that true. I saw you. Radio sort of stand out. <laughs> yeah. That was the first time I got to see you in a while. Was at Living Social because we played after you, I think. That's right. With, with yeah, Brian, yeah. yeah. That was a fun show, actually. And you guys it was, were really good. But I, mean, I had to go to a play thing. afterwards, so I saw you and I had a I ran out. I was like, oh no, Greg's playing. I gotta leave. Batting down the hatches. Well, I'm thinking next year, though, too, be, um, besides uh, the 28 if shows, I'm thinking of, of uh, getting some of my other guys and doing uh, some Ray Paul original couple shows anyway, with Ray Paul and RPM, you know. And uh, I know that uh, the guys have expressed interest in, in doing it. We just would either get maybe John Kovac to play guitar or somebody else to play guitar. I've seen you plenty of times at Love and Cup. <laughs> yeah, love, I love Love and Cup. I, it's I weird know, it's for me, place. though, too, growing up yeah. with it, because now I, Leslie's a friend, but it's like a whole different staff, so I walk in, don't you know me? <laughs> I know, uh, the staff kind of changes. But I love I loved both Abilene and Love and Cup. Uh, it was pretty much the, the two places we only do headline shows at, and... Uh, because uh, we like to get paid. Yes, and shout out <laughs> yeah. to. I know, right? It's always so important in any community because to have these places where our kind of artists can play. And Danny takes chance. He brings in the people he brings in. Yeah. And he supports locals so much too. Right. I mean, I th- I see a big, not a big change, but I see a, enough of a niche now where they're like B side and that are actually music bars. You know, like Love and Cup and, and, and Danny's place. And it's just like, you know, finally it's like the band's done. There's no reason to hang around type of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if you want to mention our... Yes, um, I do. We do much. have a 28 I try. I mean, I've tried. Yeah, I've well, given up. Well. I used to be a traditionalist. I still am about the holidays. But Christmas is on the way, and we're very thrilled to have kick off the Christmas holiday weekend with 
Would you believe 21 if? No, I no. wouldn't believe it. Okay, good. You're going to go, right? It's 28 if. You're kidding. Why am I saying this every time today? I was talking to Ray before the show, and I goofed it up every time. That's all right. I'm here to correct you. <laughs> you can feel superior to me as no, the host. No, not at all. No, We're... why am I doing that today, though? I said it, like, wrong. Sometimes people call us 281F. <laughs> <laughs> They come up to us. What's uh, we don't get to two eighty? What's the two eighty one? Oh, it's a route that goes. Oh my gosh! Right. Well, so this is going to be awesome, and it's. Because, we don't like to explain it too much, but oh I know God. you have a sophisticated, educated audience out there. <laughs> it's, well, that's they feel sophisticated, educated. Listen to so, Greg. And me. I where where is this? It's at Abilene. It's Christmas on December twenty second, two thousand and three. You don't have to wait another year. Two thousand twenty three. It's a Friday night okay, and something's kick off the holiday okay, weekend. So I, uh, I don't drink anymore or anything. This is embarrassing. That. Yeah. So December twenty second, two thousand and twenty three. Yeah. With, <laughs> with Beatles, okay. British Invasion, New 60s, Year's or Christmas Power Eve, Eve. <laughs> and more. And you know what the end more is? We're going to celebrate a few holiday tunes, Fab Four style. So <laughs> come on out and sing with us, and and you know. uh, you'll be surprised. You know, we always have, that's the one thing I like about it. we know so many songs, we pull so many songs out of our out of our hat that we we don't do the same show twice. Oh, and by right. the way, that's extra cool. treat. This is following Greg Townsend at five thirty, so I'll be there ah, early. Yeah. Awesome. That'll be a great We're letting night. him open for us. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What nice guys you are. <laughs> so I had a quick no, question. But we did put him on the on our flyer bills and everything. He's doing a solo show, yep. show there. I I was just gonna mention it. I'm glad you did though. So Oh, uh, with his bass drum on the suitcase thing? I, I don't know. That. He usually does know. something like he that. He does like he, he kicks he, it with his stomps it with a he's got a, a little suitcase. Is there a monkey in an organ? Yeah. Uh, almost. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to ask you, like, when you, on some of your stuff I saw, yeah. that you had Clem Burke and some other special guests. Like, when you get these people, how, you know, is it just like, hey, Clem, how you doing? What's going on? I mean, hey, you got, you, you're next to Ash. I mean, well, how, do you, how does it all work? First, like, with Clem, I was out there in 2003 playing a festival and staying with a friend of mine, and, and uh, he's a friend who actually was from Rochester, and... Uh, I've known him since 73, but he moved out to L.A. Uh, from, you know, he was in Boston, and we were friends there, and then he moved out to L.A. in 1980 and got married out there. And he, his wife knew, his wife used to be an editor of Teen Magazine back oh, in the okay. uh, late 60s, early 70s. And But anyway, I was at the, the birthday that he had, and Clem Burke came in, and he, I said, hey, Mick, can you, can you introduce me to Clem, you know? And so we talked, and then about a month later, he was playing with my friend John Wicks, who had a band, The Records. You ever hear of The Records? They did that song, Starry Eyes. Okay, yeah. Okay, John and I had done uh, some stuff together, and John passed away a couple of years ago, and uh, another label put out a tribute to him, which I'm, I was honored to be on, asked to do, where we just worked from demos. He just played an acoustic, and we built it up around him. So that's another thing. It's called, uh, for the record, a tribute to John Wicks. But John uh, had had used Clem on it. And I went to a, a show or two, and I, I kept running into Clem in Hollywood. You know, and so we knew each other from there. And then um, when I moved back east, and uh, I, I hadn't seen him. 
in a while, but I went to see the show he did with, uh, what's the name of um, Andy uh, Babuke's uh, band? Chesterfield K. Oh, the no, Empty Hearts. The Empty Hearts, yeah. yeah. They were playing at um, Sticky, Sticky Lips. Sticky right. Lips. That was a great now, show. I finally remember something accurately. Isn't this amazing? That was a fun show. So anyway, we were watching from the upstairs near the where the band comes around, and then they go to the dressing room, and, and they were doing a sound check, uh, and uh, we got there early enough because it was full. It up, was and jammed. So we couldn't be on the bottom level, but we were, a friend of mine and I, we were up there. And as Clem was coming back to to change to do the show, he was going up the steps and he looked, he did like a double take. Right. like. Uh, so he goes to me, he goes, meet me after the show. So we, you know, we hooked up after the show and I said, Clem, I'm going to be out in um, L.A. in January and I'm doing some recording. I was doing some with a... Uh, another guy that used to be on a label I ran, and I wanted to 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 do something up with him. And he said, "Yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm going to be there that whole month." So wow. he said, "Yeah, just call me. Let me know. Send me a tape, a demo, or whatever." So I only sent him the tape a few days before we were going to do it when I was out there. Right. And uh, uh, we did the session at a studio he liked to work with, and they had a set of drums there so he could just show up. And, right. Do the song. Always good. Well, drummers love that. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I mean, you guys, I'm telling you, well, you pay the price for doing gigs. You have to lug all that and yeah. serve up. <laughs> so we did the song there, which is on Whimsicality, the one I gave you. It's called A Fool Without Your Love. And it's actually just me and Clem on that track. We, I did it in two days. and But when we finished the first track, Clem goes to me, um, okay, what's next? I go, that's it. I only can, I only have room for one track yeah. to do everything. I booked two days. I want to get it done in two days. Right. And I got it done like ten minutes before the end of the time oh, I booked. Wow. That was mixing. We had ten minutes to spare, and then we just <laughs> talked to the engineer. I will say, Pretty Flamingo is probably cool. my top ten of favorites. I know. Songs. I wanted. To, I you wanted got to great taste. Man. Now, I'm telling still you. Manfred Man. Then I heard the Gene Pitney version though too. Yeah. But well, Pretty Flamingo. It has not only. been done in a while. Now on that track is also Pretty Flamingo is. The um, uh, well, Kurt Ryle from the Grip Weeds plays drums, and his wife Kristen plays uh, some little lead guitar. Um, I'm doing a bass and a couple acoustic and a rhythm. Rickenbacker on it, and uh, and yeah, I, I just I've always loved that song. We did that in the first 28 if, but we didn't do it in this one. Yeah, yet, that's cool. I just yeah. want to say 28 if, so I get it right once <laughs> and. That's why we have guests on the show. But now, does everybody know where Gripweeds comes from, the name? This yeah, is a little yeah. more obscure for some people. I know. I don't. Okay, it's from How I Won the War. Uh, John was in the U.S. Gripweed. He was private Gripweed. Yeah, I see. Okay. And uh, they separated it into two words. But they were on Rainbow Courts for a long time. I, wor I worked with them on a lot of radio projects over the years, too. And they are good. been friends of mine since they came out to L.A. in 94. And we've... Uh, we keep in touch. I recorded three songs with them, but that gets back to that's how I knew them. Kurt has oh, a fantastic cool, studio. Mark Lindsay did his new his solo album about eight or nine years ago. There, Kurt works with a lot of different people. He's a brilliant engineer and musician. And you know, you're, when you're on the same wavelength with people, it's right. you just so that's how I knew him just from coming out to play in L.A. That's great though. And like, also, I record in Toronto a lot. I haven't been able to get up there for a while because of COVID, and they were, like, one of the last to let people come in, right. you know. But Terry uh, Draper from Clot 2, we've been friends since I licensed uh, one of their albums back in the 90s. 
and he uh, has a great little studio, and I play on some of his stuff when I go up there, and then he plays on mine, and we kind of reciprocate. And three tracks are on from are on there that I did with. You know, there's a book in the first pocket when when you open yeah. it, it, just tells you everything. I love liner notes. I love I love Me to too. see how things are put together. I, I I miss it too. That's why I try to do that. You know, I try to give uh, people something to read while you. Except they have to print everything so small now. I know it's crazy. It's <laughs> I say if read. I can't read it, it's not going in my CD. And I'm weird too. It's like I'm much better driving and I can see my context, but I'm better reading with my glasses. I'll never figure that. One out. <laughs> I know yeah. some of these reissues. I I love the book list of them, but I'm trying to read it, and I'm like, holy crap! You need a magnifying glass. So to answer your question, this was just when I did the Whimsical County album in 2016. You mentioned recording. How did I do it? It started in 14. It, Terry and Terry Draper from Clatu up in Canada. Okay. Then I I kind of had plans. I needed to get those plans set up to go to L.A. and do stuff, and that's where the next thing came about. And what happened is all the stars must have aligned or something because all these people I wanted to use were all of a sudden available like at the right time. Like two months later, Clem's back on the road with Blondie or something. And and it just happened that, okay, that worked in this time period. This worked in that one. I got a guy in Orange County down in L.A. to do one track at his studio with me. Wow. And... Um, it's just it was just funny how everything good worked. Fortune, yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I love yeah. music. Timing is very important. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it was so much fun having a lot of. Uh, I mean, like I did that one track, everything but the drums. I I, I don't. I'd rather have other people do their right. come in and do some stuff. You know. Me too. I like um, well, them. One thing I want to do too, and to Susie Blair and I have talked about it, but I wanted to do like a duet kind of song with her. Yeah. At some point. Because I think she's great, and she's played a couple of our shows, um, and um, we've had some guests come in and, and you know and perform with us. And she's got such a great voice. And yeah, I'm doing something with her now with a couple of guys, Jeff Galino and some other guys. I met Claude Rains. He was in that band, Claude Rains. Claude Rains. Also the, yeah. Did you see him? <laughs> we're doing. Huh? Did you see Claude Rains? I, he was quite invisible. Took the words right out of my mouth. No, but anyway, it was. Uh, it, it's it's kind of fun. We're doing that. You know, some original stuff. That's what I love so much about music: the people I've been able to meet, to see, just all of it. I, I could, don't be good if I just met normal people. Yeah, <laughs> and you meet meet somebody, and then they refer you to somebody else. Everybody yeah. seems like they know everybody. It's like I would have people run into me when I'm out. I wouldn't know them. But, oh yeah, I know you. <laughs> yeah. But I have to. I'm going to guess before your show which Beatles you could mold into holiday things. Now I'm, I'll be very honest, and I'll tell you afterwards if I was right. <laughs> well. You're not telling. <laughs> what? What do you mean? We're, when we said you're going to make some of the Beatles songs into holiday songs. No, no, we're going to make holiday songs kind of Beatles. Oh, like that. Bit, yeah. I'm going to try to guess which ones. No Beatles songs into holiday. Yeah, but, but I'm going to try to guess. Well, <laughs> only one of them really is going to be um, kind of starts. You'll recognize the beginning, and and then the other ones are just it's the harmonies we're going to do are more be a little bit Beatles. Be but funny. but we're also planning on doing maybe something the Beatles did for Christmas. Or one of the Beatles or somebody. That know. would have been so cool being in the fan club That's getting cool. like the little albums. I know. Yeah. But I have to ask, because of all this Beatles stuff, what did you think of Now and Then? Well, I think they did a great job because when they first went in there, they went in on one afternoon, and that's all they did was one session, and George wasn't crazy about it, and that's pretty much the main reason I think they didn't finish that one. 
But then technology was even so much different then. It was so improved now with the separation of the voices that they couldn't do it back then, even for the uh, free as a bird and real love, that now they, um, uh, they're they able to clear it up. Right. So, um, yeah, I think it's great. But I also heard another version that some guy did all by himself that sounds like 1964. Like, it starts out, you think it's things we said today. It's like, <laughs> but it's it's now and then sped up, like faster Beatles 64 style. Yeah. And I think it's better that way. I'd like to hear it a little quicker I honestly myself. think the yeah. way the Beatles were. I'll send it to you. They were yeah. so quirky. I wouldn't be surprised, like, when the last two pass, I hope that's a long time from now, Turns out they made a whole new album in the seventies. They'll, they'll call it Surprise. <laughs> It'll pop up. Well, people have put together. You can find these on YouTube where they took some of the McCartney from the first solo album, some of the Lennon. And they put them all that if they're going to do it, and only a couple of Ringos, and then some of George's. And this could have been the album in right. nineteen seventy one. Now, I forget what the guy called it, but... Um, there's just one everyday chemistry, cool. which was like a weird story about a guy yeah. who claimed to be in a parallel universe where they made an album. <laughs> you can find this online. The guy made all this Produced stuff. by Mr. mix the yes. The little guy in the Superman yeah. comics. <laughs> now you have to say that backwards in the show. <laughs> yeah, right. I can't even yeah. pronounce stuff right today. I spell it. <laughs> That's a tough one, though. Yeah. We'll have to have you back for a Superman special. <laughs> <laughs> but supposedly now there's a 27-minute version of Helter Skelter still out there. you are going to say 27F there. <laughs> the way I'm going. 20 well, and Carnival of Light. Well, Carnival of Light, yeah, it's funny you brought that up, but somebody put up, posted online and on Facebook that, like, they did the cassette tape now and then. They put a blue one saying, this is the last Beatle recording, Carnival of Light, which right. he did that for, a, like, a psychedelic show, though, that, uh, you know, he showed up, and it was, like, sponsored by co-sponsored by Pink Floyd or something oh, wow. in 67 but it they they could have put it on the anthology which probably would have been the best place for it you know yeah but I actually had a lot of fun watching get back too yeah that was great yeah this is far better than watching the original let it be yeah. well the story goes yeah. the director then they they were breaking up there they he wanted to depict the band on the you know the end they were but I like the way Peter Jackson portrayed them, though, where they were still friends and having a great time. And that's kind of like the way bands are. You can have your differences and this and that. I mean, we've, we have that, too. I have that. I've had it with bands where, you know, we may not agree on some things, and you know, sometimes they get mad, sometimes they don't. It kind of shows you, though, the power of editing. If you're only going to show... Well, I'm only going to show what happened on this day or these couple of days when they were in a bad mood or something. It's like well, but it's he a worked, misrepresentation. He worked with like 60, 64 extra hours of footage. There was 150. He could they, they could still make another one. Yeah. <laughs> Don't think you've seen the last Beatle release. Right, no, right. From everything I've read, they were very, very close. And the problem is, too, when you're close, it's great. But when it's bad, it's really bad. <laughs> well, you like this one, Rob, because... Um, the rumor going around in the, in the inside Beetle camp is that uh, Rubber Soul is going to be the next like uh, deluxe edition, yeah. which I'm waiting for because that is my my favorite Beetle album too. So the songs are going to be based, of course, around the British version, but there's got to be plenty of outtakes from that, right? Which we we never heard, we haven't heard much from that era because they 
they just used to go in in one or two days and do the whole album or whatever, you know. <laughs> No, but that's uh, and this has been really awesome, Ray. It's been lots of oh, fun. Uh, thanks yeah, for inviting. Yeah, 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 I really appreciate Especially you having when me. I can learn to count again. That's why I'm a liberal yeah. arts major. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can I do a quick self promotion? Yeah. No, never yeah. on this show. This is important because I'm doing a gig uh, Saturday. Was it say? Yeah, Saturday. The She's 18th. messing the day up like I missed. The November 18th. I know. I had to fix that on my Facebook thing. But it's November 18th. I'm playing with the Brian Lindsay Band. It's the day after my birthday. My birthday's Friday, the 17th. So okay. everybody come down, buy me a shot. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Don't call me to pick them up <laughs> afterwards, please. And let me just remind everybody, with 28F Band featuring John Kovac, uh, Bob Vollinger, and myself, Ray Paul, we'll be at Abilene. Uh, kick off your holiday new weekend that Friday, the 22nd of December. We'll be there. And we'll, if, you, if you like Beatles, we'll do some of the originals, too. Beatles, birds. we got a huge birds medley we're, we're doing. And uh, British Invasion, if you love that stuff, you'll have a lot of fun. Trust me, you won't even leave. You'll have so much fun. Well, I mean, Danny will want you out How like much fun? Too. <laughs> so, <laughs> two, I don't think I've ever been in there later than quarter to eleven. <laughs> Know, you know, man. in the old days, <laughs> now that you got me thinking about that, I don't know, anything's, maybe something's around after 12 there, maybe. Hardly. Hardly anything happens after midnight anymore. I mean, yeah. all these well, bars I are mean, there. I don't drink anymore, so it's No, funny. I like the fact that the shows have been starting earlier in, in different places, yeah. you know? Um, so... Um, you know, it's just it's as you get older and you feel you don't want to stay up that late or right. people got to go to work. Uh, I know we try to play on the weekends because people that come out to see us are usually, you know, they 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 don't like. Oh, I also like your week. house of guitar shows. Right. Always. Oh, you were there too. Yeah. Oh, I like this guy. <laughs> How come I just met him now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm everywhere on the local scene. He stays but in I the remember shadows. I've talked a lot about the old days at the Bug Jar. They used to be you go in. It wouldn't start till midnight. Right. <laughs> you know, well, I remember Buffalo. the first time I ever went there, it said it started at nine. They're looking at me like, this guy's never been here before. <laughs> yeah. Buffalo still starts kind of late. Well, they're open till four, yeah. too. Yeah, different times, yeah. But, yeah, we're getting, we're not as young, yeah, surprisingly, we're not as young as we used to be. No. So we're still rock and rolling, though. So this is very cool, Ray. This will be lots of fun. And maybe you can have Greg play the Grinch. I give him the bit. You're in trouble now. Would you like to play sleigh bells if you're going to be there? Okay, so you can play sleigh bells. Oh, you almost gave it away. (laughs) But anyway, come celebrate the holidays with us. Our show starts at 9. Greg uh, Townsend's going to be on at 5.30 until 8.30, I guess. So, um, uh, So we're starting... You know, about an hour later than we would normally start, but uh, it's going to be a great night. Come on out. Sounds yes. like fun. I'll be there. And Come for fun. Greg. Stay for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we will. We'll, we could play a couple of your songs at the end if Greg wanted to have his favorite pick. Oh, okay. yeah. What would you like to play? Well, well, oh, he gave me two to pick, but that's okay. He I like to play. Uh, How do you know? And then this one, which was that was the big song I had in Boston years ago. We yeah. do that one with the band still, and uh, I love it. Okay, which is two and four, perfect for a drummer. Two and four, I, six I and eight. Yeah, it's two four time. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way it goes. How do you know? Well, I love it anyways. I don't know if I know, but I love it. And thanks a lot, Ray. Oh, Greg. Man. My Happy pleasure. birthday, Greg. We'll, no, thanks. It's yeah. getting there. We'll do something for you yeah, next big week, seven I suppose. Yeah, thanks for having Greg on, too, because uh, Greg and I kind of know each other. Uh, I sort of stuck the, with them yeah. on the show. Through the wars. <laughs> thanks a lot. Cool. Yeah.